I have called up in all my years of sorcery no god or devil, no demon or lich or shadow which I could not control fascination in attending in his brain. He it is verily known by few. But and the thing was a streaming ooze of charnel pollution, a foulness beyond the black leprosy of hell, and I could bear it no men more. Chase a double stag in the nearby forest. A taking horse and rider, he caught them with one hand. Dreaming of conquest and of vaster necromancies, they grew silently priests and women, it is told, me picked up as they fled, and pulled limb from limb as a child might quarter an insect. The double shadow. Clark Ashton Smith Podcast. Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Reed. And this week, we'll be covering the second half of The Colossus of Ylorn. So if you haven't listened to the previous podcast where we discussed the first four sections of the Colossus of Ylorn, do so. Or, you know, if you're a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants type of person, listen to the end and then go back to the beginning. Pretend it's like a Tarantino movie or something. So, where did we leave off? Well, the infamous sorcerer necromancer Nathair had vanished out of Averon raised a bunch of corpses, which went gallivanting off into the night toward what people originally figured out was the ruined castle of Ylorn, frightened the heck out of some monks who came tracking down one of these corpses that happened to be their dead brother, as in brother in the order. The, he reanimated a couple of corpses and chased them out of there. And then his old apprentice, Gaspard du Nord, uh, fearlessly broke into the castle and sneaked up to see what he was doing and discovered that he was making this 100-foot-long colossus and imbuing it with flesh. And at that point, Gaspard got hit over the head, and his assailant kept him from falling and dashing his brains out, so we expect that we'll get Gaspard waking up and finding out what all's going on. Perhaps even Nefer will tell him the details of his plot, monologuing, because he thinks that Gaspard can't possibly escape now. But that's just a theory. <laughs> Before we get back into the story, I wanted to talk very, very briefly about how Gaspard Dunor doesn't really make many other fiction appearances, but he does actually appear in letters written by uh, Lovecraft. Right. Um, yeah, we have one on the site where Lovecraft mentions Gaspard Dunord in giving a fictional history of Averon. And he, he uses him also in a really like kind of comedic letter where he's giving, I think, Robert Block permission to use um, himself in a, in a story. Uh, and it, he has listed as the witnesses to his signature, uh, Gaspard de Nord. Wow. And then later in a Clark Ashton Smith story, um, he will appear not as a character, but as a translator of the Book of Ibon, um, which is kind of fun. I just want to know as much about Gaspard as I can possibly yeah, can. Yeah, seriously. From, <laughs> from these sources, I learned that he apparently lived in the 20th century and uh, was hanging around with H.P. Lovecraft. So there you go. And is played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Or Ryan Gosling. <laughs> or, or hear me out, yeah. Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> <laughs> Young Jeff Goldblum, like Jurassic Park? Yeah, which Jeff Goldblum? You know what's funny? I don't view Jeff Goldblum as aging. <laughs> I really All I bad. see is Goldblum. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> all right. So, getting into the story? Part 5. 
the horror of Yavorn. Gaspard, returning from his dark plunge into Lethian emptiness, found himself gazing into the eyes of Nathair, those eyes of liquid night and ebony, in which swarmed the chill, malignant fires of stars that had gone down to irredeemable perdition. For some time, in the confusion of his senses, he could see nothing but the eyes, which seemed to have drawn him forth like baleful magnets from his swoon. Apparently disembodied, or set in a face too vast for human cognizance, they burned before him in a chaotic murk. Then, by degrees, he saw the other features of the sorcerer, and the details of a lurid scene, and became aware of his own situation. Trying to lift his hands to his aching head, he found that they were bound tightly together at the wrists. He was half lying, half leaning against an object with hard planes and edges that irked his back. Nathair, propped among Saracenic cushions with arabesques of sullen gold and fulgurant scarlet, was peering upon him from a kind of improvised couch made with bales of orient rugs and arrases, to whose luxury the rude walls of the castle, stained with mold and mottled with the dead fungi, offered a grotesque foil. Dim lights and evilly swooping shadows flickered across the scene, and Gaspard could hear a guttural hum of voices behind him. Twisting his head a little, he saw one of the stone vats, whose rosy luminosity was blurred and blotted by vampire wings that went to and fro. Welcome, said Nathair. Chills. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting about this description of him propped on here is is the Saracenic thing, yeah. um, mm-hmm. which I hadn't really thought about, but he he's like sets up that, he, that Nathair may have been taught by the Saracenes or something way, way yeah. back in the, yeah. in the first paragraph. And every time Nathair comes up, this the, the adjective Saracenic is, all, is used to, um, to evoke like a, kind of a style of dress almost. It's, it's like kind a, of like a, like a style. Like almost. Middle Eastern, right? Yeah. But yeah. like medieval Middle Eastern. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Nathair as this sort of debauched, like decadent and dying um, figure. Like he kind of, in my mind, he's a little bit like the hedonist bot in Futurama. Oh gosh. <laughs> I don't now think that you've said it. <laughs> I don't think he speaks that way, but it's like it's just, I get a similar vibe. That's all I'm saying. Well, that's never coming out of my head. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. You're welcome. So Gaspard tries to interrogate him and find out what's going on and figure out, is he trying to get to heaven or, you know, what? This is actually a cool passage that backs up something that Smith wrote before Gaspard tries to get information out of Nathair and Nathair laughs and says, Nay, nay, my good Gaspard, I have made another bond than the one which pew and coward try to purchase the goodwill and forgiveness of the heavenly tyrant. Hell may take me in the end, if it will, but hell has paid and will still pay an ample and goodly price. I must die soon, it is true, for my doom is written in the stars, but in death, by the grace of Satan, I live again, and shall go forth endowed with the mighty thews of the Anakin, to visit vengeance on the people of Avarim, who have long hated me for my necromantic wisdom, and have held me in derision for my dwarf stature. Oh crap. (laughs) Yeah, but early on in the story, Smith hinted that maybe Nathair cast his own horoscope and saw that he was going to die. So he's kind of backing that up here. 
yeah, there's a couple of fascinating things about the there in this passage. Yeah. Um, I think first is the hor- the horoscope thing. Like he knows he's going to die, which is interesting because Nathair knows he's going to die, but also because every rumor that the people of my own said about him is true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then I also like that Nathair is is this figure who is he's not really like he sort of seems to view heaven and hell as equal things for him to play with in a sense like because he says he won't that he hasn't made a deal with god but he has kind of made a deal with the devil but he's still like but he got hell to pay him for it in effect which is kind of an interesting it's kind of like a johnny john constantine kind of thing that's going on Mm -hmm. which is kind of cool and then you have this last sentence last part of this which puts him very much in the same light as blaze renard where i'm left kind of wondering if the people of Averone hadn't been such dicks to him would he have been such a bad guy? <laughs> I think probably that there would have been, but I, I like that he does. Smith does put a shade of moral gray here, which yeah. is kind of interesting. I think know? he he would have been. He definitely would have saw life beyond his failing body, right. but he might not. It might not have been as vengeance driven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but he mentions something about the Anakim. The Anakim is a biblical reference to a strong and tall giant people mentioned in a few books of the Old Testament. Is that like David and Goliath? No, Goliath wasn't an Anakim. No, he it, was... it's, it's, it's kind of slightly more obscure than that almost. It, it, they is, it come like up... the, um, is it like the Anunnaki? Sons of God and the daughters of men. Right. Yes, those are the ones. Like it comes up, it comes up when uh, Moses is, is leaving Egypt, and he like sends scouts out to see what's out there, and they run into the Anakim, and uh, are that's where this description of strong and tall comes from. And then I guess they they come up in some later books too, um, but they're always they're sort of like tangential biblical figures, like Jacques Le Loup Garou. Yeah, they're like the Bible's Jacques Le Loup Garou. <laughs> So Nathair's plan is pretty much spelled out here. Like he's making this giant out of the bones and flesh of the dead. And he's then going to transmigrate his soul into the thing um, as his body dies. So this giant 100 foot tall monstrosity will become Nathair. And he's just going to let Gaspard hang out and watch, right? Well, not let him hang out. He's going to throw him in the oubliette. In the oubliette. You know who else is a strong young man? Jeff Goldblum. I don't know if Jeff Goldblum could get himself out of an oubliette, though. You clearly haven't seen, uh, I Go can't on. think of an appropriately obscure <laughs> Jeff Goldblum movie. <laughs> so what is an oubliette? It's a little dungeon cell deep, deep under a castle, generally, where you throw people to forget about them. Hence the, the name meaning, um, well, it comes from the French word for forgetting. Oh, so it really is to put somebody in to make them, for, to just forget about them? Yeah, you throw somebody down there and you don't check on them. Kind of like... When he's down in the oubliette, he'll stumble over a skeleton, and that guy was thrown down there, probably by one of the barons east of the castle. So is it like the dungeon of the dungeon? Yeah. You're not coming out of an oubliette, theoretically. No, I was not going to say it's a bad oubliette. He took over a castle that had been out of use for, you know, hundreds of years, so nobody's really at fault. The oubliette kind of sucks. Well, hold on, um, hold on. Well, it's, it's not like he thought he was going to have to repair the oubliette. You know, he would have just killed Gaspard and, and put him in the statue. The skeleton. 
before it's his own we, fault for not just killing Gaspar before right there. Before we move on to the escape from the oubliette, right. I just want to point out the phrase when he's talking about the oubliette. Yeah. Smith says it was made strong and deep by the grim lords of the place. Grim lords is totally, if it's not already the name of a metal band, it's now the name of my metal band. <laughs> yeah, the grim lords of Yaloran. The grim lords of Yaloran. Yeah. Oh, I just want to listen to an album by the grim lords of Yaloran so bad right now. What's It'll be the, our side project. What's the uh, album called? The Oubliette Beneath the Castle. <laughs> well, that, that's more of a track name. Okay. I think, I think, I think the album's probably called Jacques Le Lucre, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so the, he chucks, he has one of his apprentices uh, chuck Gaspar down the Oubliette. And that takes us into... Part 6, The Vaults of Yamor. And this is a pretty straightforward part. Gaspard yeah. wakes up in the oubliette. He stumbles around for a bit. They throw down some wine and bread at one point. Which goes against the whole philosophy of an oubliette, that they wine give him bread. food and wine. Yep, that they actually remembered to give him some food. I don't think I don't think uh, Nathair is really up on this whole lord of the castle right. thing. He, he wasn't trained. And it shows, but, I mean, it, it did, it struck me a little bit that maybe Nathair... And there's nothing else in the story to back this up, but maybe because Gaspard was once his pupil, he kind of feels that he can still either turn him or he still cares about him a little bit. It's possible. I mean, it, this is this to me, Nathair acts a little bit here like a fairly cliched villain. The whole like, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do and then I'm going to put you in a place that you can't escape from, even though clearly you can. Right. Um, and then you like I don't understand why he doesn't just kill him. I don't understand why they're why they're giving him food and wine. Mm-hmm. Or he did, they don't take his dagger either. Yeah. Right? Yeah, they leave him his food and his dagger. That is a serious problem with villains in Avalon. <laughs> <laughs> but I think yeah. the giving him food and wine kind of back and not killing him kind of backs up that Nathair still views him as either a friend or somebody that he can use later on. Kind of, but that goes against directly against what he says to him, which is if you had gotten here earlier, I would have killed you and made you part of my body, my new super cool body. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know. I mean, I I see, I see the logic of what you're saying, but I don't know. I don't know that I a hundred percent buy it. This is our blood drunk vampire of the story. Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. right, exactly. In the bottom of the Oubliette, he finds this little stream of water and, and fresh air. And so he thinks, hmm, that's kind of interesting. And so he starts digging at it with his handy dagger. And after a while, uh, the, the bricks are loose enough that he starts pulling them out. And I, I just picture like chucking them over his shoulder back into the cell. Mm-hmm. And everybody's upstairs working, so nobody hears any of this. And he builds himself a little tunnel. And at first he thinks, oh, crap, I'm never, ever going to go anywhere. And he gets to this cavern under it and he thinks okay this is bad i'm just as trapped as i was before and i actually wonder if he kind of walled it in after him because he seems rather despondent like mm-hmm. he could just go back to the oubliette but then i took it as that he's hardcore like he's never gonna go backwards <laughs> he's he's going forward digging blindly forward and then he finds stairs which is pretty exciting and he hears odd sounds as he climbs upward banging chanting and instead of running away, he heads toward the banging and the chanting, which actually is pretty hardcore of him. 
in spite of the horripilations he gets. Horripilation is my word of the of the episode. It's this super fancy way of saying he got goosebumps because he was scared. <laughs> so he was down there for a day and a night, a whole day and part of another night, and now he's out. Yeah, and he's sort of back. He he seems to have kind of the same vantage as he had before, right? Or is he not? He's not above the central chamber. He's on level with it. Is that where mm-hmm. he is? Yeah. Yeah, he's just at the regular central chamber. Um, and in the center chamber, uh, the ten pupils, the necromantic crew, are chanting and performing uh, what seems to be kind of the end game of their uh, of their whole ritual. Fearfully, as one who confronts an apparition reared up from nether hell, Gaspard beheld the colossus that lay inert as if in cyclopean sleep on the castle flags. The thing was no longer a skeleton. The limbs were rounded into vast, enormous thews, like the limbs of biblical giants. The flanks were like an insuperable wall. The deltoids of the mighty chest were broad as platforms. The hands could have crushed the bodies of men like millstones. But the face of the stupendous monster, seen in profile athwart the pouring moon, was the face of the satanic dwarf Nether, re-magnified a hundred times, the same in its implacable madness and malevolence. The vast bosom seemed to rise and fall, and during a pause of the necromantic ritual, Gaspard heard the unmistakable sound of a mighty respiration. The eye in the profile was closed, but its lid appeared to tremble like a great curtain, as if the monster were about to wake and the outflung hand, with fingers pale and bluish as a row of corpses, twitched unquietly on the castle flags. The thing is about to come to life, and Gaspard sensibly thinks to himself, I am going to get the crap out of here. Um, So he starts to make his way out, but on his way out, he sees, for a moment, through bellying folds of vapor, the couch on which the shrunken form of Nether was lying pallid and motionless. It seemed that the dwarf was dead or had fallen into a stupor preceding death. So two things are happening at the same time. We kind of knew they were going to happen. One is that Nathair is finally dying. And of course, he's now transmigrating his soul into this horrible uh, giant. And for whatever reason, I have to wonder, did he have them sculpt the face to look like him? Or is that just a natural uh, consequence of his soul entering the giant body. He seems pretty vain. I think it was on purpose. I mean, yeah. he was a dwarf and he was mocked for being a dwarf. And so I think he wants people to be sure to know who's coming for him and who's the little guy now. I'm a hundred feet tall. I agree. Screw I agree you. exactly with that sentiment. Who's the little guy now, huh? <laughs> um, so Gaspard kind of is backing his way out as he sees Nathair. And as soon as he sees that he's clear of the eyeline of the evil pupils, he basically just turns and uh, runs. But as he does, he gets a sense that the giant has stirred, like one who tosses in light slumber. So he runs out of the courtyard, and then without looking back, he fled like a devil-hunted thing upon the steep and chasm-riven slopes beyond Yalorn. Which again, this seems to me to be similar to how the uh, corpses were described as moving, which I think is kind of fun. Um, oh, yeah. Like Gaspard is now running full bore out of the castle, just like all of the, uh, the liches and uh, resurrected corpses were running into it just a couple weeks before, you know? Part 7 The Coming of the Colossus. After the cessation of the exodus of liches, a universal terror still prevailed. 
a wide-flung shadow of apprehension, infernal and funereal, lay stagnantly on Averone. There were strange and disastrous portents in the aspect of the skies. Flame-bearded meteors had been seen to fall beyond the eastern hills. A comet far in the south had swept the stars with its luminous bosom for a few nights, and then had faded, leaving among men the prophecy of bale and pestilence to come. By day the air was oppressed and sultry, and the blue heavens were heated as if by whitish fires. Clouds of thunder, darkling and withdrawn, shook their fulgurant lances on the far horizons, like some beleaguering titan army. A moraine such as would come from the working of wizard spells was abroad among the cattle. All these signs and prodigies were an added heaviness on the burdened spirits of men who went to and fro in daily fear of the hidden preparations and machinations of hell. But until the actual breaking forth of the incubated menace, there was no one save Gaspard de Nord who had knowledge of its veritable form. So it's like the end times. Yeah. Signs in the heaven, plagues among the cattle. Uh, so <laughs> Gaspard, the one guy who knows definitely what's going on, uh, is running like crazy through the forests of Averone, uh, trying to get back to Vion. Uh, and there's a few cool things about him running back to Vion. The first, which is pretty badass but kind of horrible, is that he doesn't stop to warn anybody on the way because he figures mm -hmm. they would not be able to save themselves anyway. So he's, I just sort of picture him seeing like the same people he stayed with on his way to Gilorn and just being like, "Sorry, I got, like I got, I've got something." that I have to do and I, ca I can't save you, um, which is pretty interesting. And the second notable thing is that the werewolves do come up again here. <laughs> I was wondering if you would say that. Timothy. Yeah, let's hear it. Uh, he plunged like a madman through the towering woods that were haunted by robbers and werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> point Phil. Yes, point me. <laughs> so all the while that he's running, despite his rather harried and uh, breathless state, Gaspar de Nord, ever our hero, is formulating a desperate plan to stop this thing. In the interim, several monks of the Cistercian Brotherhood, watching the Grey Wall of Yalorn at early dawn with their habitual vigilance, were the first after Gaspar to behold the monstrous horror created by the necromancers. Their account may have been somewhat tinged by a pious exaggeration, but they swore that the giant rose abruptly, standing more than waist high above the ruins of the Barbican amid a sudden leaping of long-tongued fires and a swirling of pitchy fumes erupted from Malbolge. The giant's head was level with the high top of the donjon, and his right arm, outthrust, lay like a bar of stormy cloud athwart the new-risen sun. The monks fell groveling to their knees, thinking that the archbone himself had come forth, using Ylorn from his gateway from the pit. Then across the mile-wide valley, they heard a thunderous peal of demoniac laughter, and the giant, climbing over the mounded barbican at a single step, began to descend the scarped and craggy hill. When he drew nearer, bounding from slope to slope, his features were manifestly those of some great devil animated with ire and malice toward the sons of Adam. His hair in matted locks streamed behind him like a mass of black pythons. His naked skin was livid and pale and cadaverous with the skin of the dead, but beneath it the stupendous thews of a titan swelled and rippled. The eyes wide and glaring flames beneath lidless cauldrons heated by the fires of the unplumbed pit. Okay, I have just a couple of quibbles here. Well, I have one quibble, really. 
uh, it calls it lidless cauldrons, and perhaps they're just saying that it's like open cauldrons, yeah. but clearly his eyes have lids. Because Gaspar just saw them. So, just putting that out there. The eyes have lids. And he's naked. I hadn't yeah, he's thought totally about naked. Yeah, he's naked and he's before. got like dreadlocks. Jeez. To quote from young Frankenstein, he must have an enormous schwanstiger. <laughs> <laughs> and there you have it. Yeah, so, holy crap. Dude's awake. Yeah. And dude's pissed. And I love that it's not like this slow lumbering giant. Like the monks swore that it just pops up. So he's just like, boom. And then he laughs. Yeah. Awesome. Because he's got a brand new body. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's awesome. I love the, 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 his um, right arm out thrust like a bar of stormy cloud athwart the new risen sun. <laughs> it's awesome. It's frustrating because I would love to go line for line mm-hmm. over this entire part because pretty much everything about it is cool. But so who, Tim, who, who among the monks is brave enough to watch this monstrosity as it lumbers across the valley? Well, I don't think there's one monk who is brave enough, but there are two: Bernard and Stephane. Their their backs probably still aching from the the hiding they took from Nathair's demon servants, but they watch. And it's good that they're not hanging out in the church because the Colossus totally chucks some boulders at it and smashes it, mingling their flesh with the splinters of their cross and stuff. Which is another great. I mean, this whole thing the the, the religion versus necromancers. Yeah. As I'm rereading it for this, I see the two just coming together and clashing against each other, and I love it. And it's not even a match. Like, this Colossus is just, it's unstoppable. And he tramples Phil's heroic goat herds. He does, but but, uh, uh, as the the Colossus turns to leave, he he, he just sort of throws the boulder through the, the church and kills a bunch of monks, and then he... Besides, he has other things to do. But as he turns around and leaves, um, Stefan and Bernard catch sight of his back, on which uh, there is a huge basket made of planking that hung suspended by ropes between the giant's shoulders. In that basket, in the basket, ten men, the pupils and assistants of Nathair, were being carried like so many dolls or puppets in a peddler's pack. The Colossus has a backpack. Yeah, and it's filled full, with people. It's full of people. <laughs> See, this makes me, this also kind of backs up, like he wants his pupils around, so maybe even ex-pupils, like Gaspard de Nord. He's I kind don't of, even know why. <laughs> I don't know why I'm either. so confused by this. He's got a backpack of necromancers, yeah. and the backpack of necromancers is the name of my next metal band? I'm not really sure. It's the name of my next erotica, honey. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I- dare you. <laughs> All right, so now the Colossus goes on a rampage. Men heard his mighty laughter, his stormy bellowing. They saw his approach from a distance of many leagues and fled or concealed themselves as best they could. The lords of moated castles called in their men at arms, drew up their drawbridges and prepared as if for the siege of an army. The peasants hid themselves in caverns and cellars and old wells and even beneath hay mounds hoping that he would pass by them unnoticed. The churches were crammed with refugees who sought protection of the cross, deeming that Satan himself, or one of his chief lieutenants, had risen to harry and lay waste to the land. In a voice like summer thunder, mad maledictions, unthinkable obscenities, and blasphemies were uttered ceaselessly by the giant 
as he went to and fro. Men heard him address the litter of black-clad figures that he carried on his back in tones of admonishment or demonstrations such as a master would use to his pupils. People who had known Nathair recognized the incredible likeness of the huge features, the similarity of the swollen voice to his. A rumor went abroad that the dwarf sorcerer, through his loathly bond with the adversary, had been permitted to transfer his hateful soul into this titanic form, and, bearing his pupils with him, had returned to vent an insatiable ire, a bottomless rancor on the world that had mocked him for his puny physique and reviled him for his sorcery. The charnel genesis of the monstrous avatar was also rumored, and indeed it was said that the Colossus had openly proclaimed his identity. Bam. I, yeah, I like I like the openly proclaimed his identity part because it's like occasionally he just says I'm the there. Like right. it's like like uh, In, yeah. yeah. He take he pauses from his ceaseless blasphemies to tell yeah. everybody who he is. <laughs> I like to think he threw out a. Kneel before me, yeah, or something like that. While he was working on it, the rampage is so awesome. Yeah, it really is. It's really, and this this also goes back to what we were talking about in the last podcast. How Smith is all about escalation. It's not just that there's this Colossus who we know wants to get revenge on the citizens of Vion, who threw rocks at him and lamed his leg. But he basically travels all around Averone, just causing carnage. And here's some of it. There were people, mostly priests and women, it is told, whom he picked up as they fled and pulled limb from limb as a child might quarter an insect. And there were worse things, not to be named in this record. Many eyewitnesses told how he hunted Pierre, the lord of La Frenay, who had gone forth with his dogs and men to chase a noble stag in the nearby forest. Overtaking horse and rider, he caught them with one hand, and bearing them aloft as he strode over the treetops, he hurled them later against the granite wall of the Chateau La Frenay in passing. Then, catching the red stag that Pierre had hunted, he flung it after them, and the huge bloody blotches made by the impact of the bashed bodies remained long on the castle stone and were never wholly washed away by the autumn rains and the winter snows. Countless tales were told, also, of the deeds of obscene sacrilege and profanation committed by the Colossus, of the wooden virgin that he flung into the soul above Zion's, lashed with human gut to the rotting, male-clad body of an infamous outlaw, of the wormy corpses that he dug with his hands from unconsecrated graves, and hurled into the courtyard of the Benedictine Abbey of Paragon, of the Church of St. Zenobi, which he buried with its priests and congregation beneath a mountain of ordure made by the gathering of all the dung heaps from neighboring farms. <laughs> this is just awful. This is awful stuff. He's digging up dead bodies and throwing them into churchyards. But more than that, he buries a church in shit. <laughs> It's just amazing. It's crazy. There's a couple of little nods in here to other Everone things yeah. that we've run into before. Mm -hmm. uh, the Lord of Lafrenai, they make ale, right? That's what yes. uh, what Blaise Renard is drinking mm -hmm. in making gargoyles. And then Paragon is the is the monastery it, it, or the abbey in End of the Story? Is it? Yes. 
Yeah. So fortunately, um, nobody we care about got buried in yeah. that dunghill. Yeah, Paragon survived. is not. <laughs> no, he's just the Colossus is just, and I think he mentions it somewhere here that he is Nathera's kind of saving the own for last, and he's just mm-hmm. to and fro in a mad frenzy of destruction, like a death drunken cyclops. He wandered all that day, so he's just wandering around, causing chaos and carnage. It's, Unfortunately, it's- oh. No, I'm, I, nothing. I'm just going to comment again on how it's awesome. I don't know what to say. <laughs> as the the capper, as to why this is all awesome and why we can't go through it all, Smith even admits it and writes in the story, it would be tedious to make explicit mention of all the enormities, all the atrocities that were ascribed to the marauding giant. Actually, the, the one other notable thing about this, and then we should move on, I guess, is that is that he steps out of the story for a second and says, like, calls the story a record. Right. Mm-hmm. As if it's something, which, like, there's no narrator in the story that we're aware of, except for this one weird sentence where he's like, right. I can't tell you everything in this record. <laughs> I don't really know what to make of that, except that it's a weird... Like it's a weird storytelling device that's not found anywhere else in the in the story. Right. It's actually very fortunate that he does go hither and yon because while he's doing that, Gaspard is tearing like a crazy dude back toward Vion and coming up with his plan. Because if he'd gone straight to Vion, he would have beaten Gaspard there and everything would have well, his plan would have worked, probably. But Gaspard makes it back to uh Vion in the last section of the book. Part 8, The Laying of the Colossus. We're like death drunk colossuses right now. I'm totally death drunk right (laughs) now. I'm just thinking about that poor church buried in manure. It's so upsetting. It is. Okay, so Gaspard makes it back to Vion. The colossus is still making a mad path of murder and carnage through the forest. Uh, In fact... um, Smith calls it a drunken zigzag course from end to end and side to side of the harried realm. So Gaspard's back in Vaillant, and we get kind of a, a picture of what's going on in the cathedral city now. In spite of his rags and filth, which rendered him practically unrecognizable and gave him a most disreputable air, Gaspard was admitted without question by the guards at the city gate. Vion was already thronged with people who had fled to the sanctuary of its stout walls from the adjacent countryside, and no one, not even the most dubious character, was denied admittance. The walls were lined with archers and pike-bearers gathered in readiness to dispute the entrance of the giant. Crossbowmen were stationed above the gates, and mangonels were mounted at short intervals along the entire circuit of the ramparts. The city seethed and hummed like an agitated hive. Hysteria and pandemonium prevailed in the streets. Pale, panic-stricken faces milled everywhere in an aimless stream. Hurrying torches flared deloriously in twilight that deepened, as if with the shadow of impending wings arisen from Erebus. The gloom was clogged with intangible fear, with webs of stifling oppression. Through all this rout of wild disorder and frenzy, Gaspard, like a spent but indomitable swimmer breasting some tide of eternal, vicious nightmare, made his way slowly to his attic lodgings. Things in Vion aren't good. No. <laughs> no, and I like that Smith has some verisimilitude here that Gaspard has to force his way back to his lodgings, yeah. that he wouldn't have probably been admitted to the city even if it weren't just streaming with refugees. And then his first actions are to eat and pass out because he's been running all <laughs> yeah. day long. And I just, I like that. I, I like that it's not like, oh yeah, the hero with his hair completely fine, you know, sits down and starts going over his books and that. 
he looks terrible, he has to eat, he passes out, and he doesn't wake up until it's very late. But then he gets right down to it. It's true. It's awesome. Because he's got stuff to do. He's got a colossus to lay. He does. <laughs> <laughs> that should be your next round. <laughs> so he knows what to do. Well, he has an idea. Gaspard, he was Nathar's pupil. So he knows some of Nathar's methods. And it gives him uh, kind of an insight of, of how Nathar has done this. So he kind of knows how to counter it. Um, so he sets about making a, a gray powder one that he's seen Nathair use to put down resurrected liches. And he figures it's just a big lich, essentially. So if he uses this powder, it should work against it. And he, he realizes that he's going to need more than just a dab of this great powder. And he made a considerable quantity of the mixture, arguing that no mere finger pinch would suffice for the lulling of the gigantic charnel monstrosity. His guttering yellow candle was dimmed by the white dawn as the end of the Latin formula of fearsome verbal invocation from which the compound would derive much of its efficiency. The formula, which called for the cooperation of Alastor and other evil spirits, he used with unwillingness. But he knew that there was no alternative. Sorcery could only be fought with sorcery. Sorcery could only be fought with sorcery. That's it. officially what I live by now. <laughs> and I like that he called up Alastor, who's supposedly... Nathair's father. I don't think, I mean, look, I don't know Alistair that well, but I don't <laughs> think that's actually Nathair's father. That's just a rumor. Like, that's that's the rumor. one rumor that's just a rumor in this story. Oh, okay. Maybe Nathair's like Hellboy. He could be. Dwarf boy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he makes this gray powder, yeah. uh, makes a lot of this gray powder. How much gray powder do you think he makes? Well, he mentions later that he's got a like a pouch full, so it's it's probably like a like a like wiffle ball, <laughs> a wiffle ball sized pouch of this powder. See, I want it to be like like a milk jug. <laughs> well, you probably just need like a, a a dash to lay a real corpse. So right. yeah, so we need a hundred dashes to lay a hundred corpses <laughs> right. or a hundred foot corpse, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, so so dawn breaks over the city, um, and Gaspard sort of via some intuition that he has figures that the Colossus is going to strike uh, his final vengeance against the city on that day. Um, and he knows that he has to get up to basically face level of the Colossus because he needs to get this stuff into his lungs. Uh, and the only place in the city that's tall enough for him to do this is, of course, the infamous Cathedral of Fionn. The cathedral nave was packed with worshippers, and solemn masses were being said by priests whose voices faltered at times with inward panic. Unheeded by the wan, despairing throng, Gaspard found a flight of coiling stairs that led tortuously to the gargoyle-warded roof of the high tower. Here he posted himself, crouching behind the stone figure of a cat-headed griffin. From his vantage, he could see beyond the crowded spires and gables the approaching giant whose head and torso loomed above the city walls. A cloud of arrows, visible even at that distance, rose to meet the monster, who apparently did not even pause to pluck them from his hide. Great boulders hurled from the magonels were no more to him than the pelting of gravel. The heavy bolts of obelisks embedded in his flesh were mere slivers. Nothing could stay his advance. The tiny figures of a company of pikemen who opposed him with outthrust weapons swept from the wall above the eastern gate by a single sidelong blow of the 70-foot pine he bore for a cudgel. 
Then, having cleared the wall, the Colossus climbed over it into beyond. I love that he's hiding behind the cat-headed gargoyle. Yep. The gargoyle of wrath. That's clearly the same gargoyle, but he's not animated anymore, which is kind of a pity for this story. It's true. It, like, Gaspard de Nord teamed up with uh, the Gargoyle of Wrath. That sounds like a buddy cop movie to me. So the Colossus, he's at the city. He's there. He steps over the wall. Nothing can stop him. Nope. He just punches into houses so that they collapse. And Wait, did we mention are- that he made a club out of a tree? Uh, we didn't mention it earlier, but he made a club out of a tree. Yes. <laughs> a 70-foot tall tree. Yeah. It's Awesome. Yeah, and he's using it to just smash windows and houses, and and then he he sees the cathedral. This is the thing that he wants to take his time with, so he reaches it and cries out, "Ho, ye puling priests and devotees of a powerless god, come forth and bow to the fair of the master before he sweeps you into limbo." It was then that Gaspard, with a hardihood beyond comparison, rose from his hiding place and stood in full view of the raging Colossus. Draw nearer, Nathair, if it indeed be you, foul robber of tombs and charnels. He taunted. Come close, for I would hold speech with you. Awesome. (laughs) I guess this part kind of speaks to Tim's theory that even in this strange moment, Nathair does draw closer to Gaspard. Right. He he leans in to make sure that it is Gaspard, sees that it is, and kind of, this is kind of cool, he like reaches his gigantic titanic hand up and like twitches in front of Gaspard's face. Well, Gaspard had furtively loosened his leathern pouch that hung at his belt and had untied its mouth. Now, as the twitching fingers descended towards him, He emptied the contents of the pouch in the giant's face, and the fine powder mounting in a dark gray cloud obscured the snarling lips and palpitating nostrils from his view. But then, the evil lambents died in the pit-deep eyes as the monster inhaled the flying cloud. His lifted hand, narrowly missing the crouching youth in its sweet, fell lifelessly at his side. The anger was erased from the mighty, contorted mask, as if from the face of a dead man. The great cudgel fell with a clash to the empty street, and with drowsy, lurching steps and listless hanging arms, the giant turned his back to the cathedral and retraced his way through the devastated city. He muttered dreamily to himself as he went, and people who heard him swore that the voice was no longer the awful, thunder-swollen voice of Nathair, but the tones and accents of a multitude of men, amid which the voices of certain of the ravished dead were recognizable. And the voice of Nathair himself, no louder now than in life, was heard at intervals throughout the manifold mutterings as if protesting angrily. The Colossus went to and fro for many hours, no longer wreaking a hellish wrath and rancor, but searching, as people thought, for the various tombs and graves from which the hundreds of bodies that composed it had been so foully reft. From charnel to charnel, from cemetery to cemetery it went, all through the land, but there was no grave anywhere in which the dead colossus could lie down. Then, towards evening, men saw it from afar on the red rim of the sky, digging with its hands in the soft, loamy plain beside the river as well. There, in a monstrous and self-made grave, the colossus laid itself down and did not rise again. The ten peoples in the there, it was believed, unable to descend from their basket, were crushed beneath the mighty body, for none was ever seen thereafter. 
For many days, no one dared to approach the place where the corpse lay uncovered in its self-dug grave, and the thing rotted so prodigiously beneath the summer sun, breeding a mighty stench that wrought pestilence in that portion of Averone. And they who ventured to go near in the following autumn, when the stench had lessened greatly, swore that the voice of Nathair, still protesting angrily, was heard by them to issue from the enormous rook-haunted bulk. Of Gaspar du Nord, who had been the savior of the province, it was related that he lived in much honor to a ripe age, being the one sorcerer of that region who at no time incurred the disapprobation of the church. Dang straight. And that's how you end a story. It's crazy, this part, because, like, what is the, what, I, like, I'm befuddled and just so intrigued by the ma- the magic at work. Like, what is it? Why suddenly do they all talk? Go ahead, Jim. This kind of um, speaks back to what we were talking about in the, I think it was the last episode, with the what was in the white vat. Right. Um, the white vat might have been, like, the souls right. or the personalities. because I'm still going with it being bones, but... But then why would all of these voices ring out, including Nathair's? Like, they're obviously separate from the actual physical part. It's true, and they would not have used Nathair's body. I think we know they didn't use Nathair's body as part no, of the closet. because uh, Nathair's body is still sitting yeah. there to this day on that couch in the uh, castle of Yalorn. Let's go to Yalorn and find Nathair's bones. It doesn't exist. We can't do that. Oh. Um now I'm depressed. <laughs> Road trip. Can I but, just say how proud I am of Clark Ashton Smith for writing this story? You can, but I want to talk about how awesome it is that it doesn't just keel over and die. No. Like, mm-hmm. It's so great that it has this like horrible – like I feel sorry for the Colossus at the end of the story. Like it doesn't – it has no place to die. Like it can't, no. so it has to go and dig itself. Yeah. this amazing like, doom. It's the it's brain. the Ashton Smith escalation effect. It is, yeah, totally. Is. Things just drag out and get more and more horrible. And I think, well, Nathera is probably pissed off as he seems to be ranting angrily from this rook haunted carcass. Um, I think he would be kind of pleased that at least uh, when the Colossus rotted, it wrought pestilence on the land. Yeah. That's true. So some of the omens that they saw actually came true, but not from the Colossus. They came true from the dead Colossus. I like that little touch. Yeah. This is why I find find it a shame that like Averone as a as a as a setting never took off and like, you know, like Elspreg de Camp never wrote Averone stories. Right. <laughs> like I would love for a hero of Averone it like two hundred years afterwards to find the bones of the Colossus. Right. That would be so awesome. Or quest after the deformed skull of Nathair. Right? It's awesome. Yeah, it is. There are two stories that I think are that were written much, much later that I think are directly inspired by the story. One, Ruth, is the Hellboy story, right? Oh, right. That's right. Yes. The story is called Almost Colossus. It's one of the, obviously, um, it's one of the earlier Mike Mignola Hellboy stories. It's really fantastic. It involves some homunculi that's clay humans and one of them is trying to get revenge and so he builds himself this same sort of flesh golem and Hellboy is trying to track down why all these bodies are suddenly getting up and walking away and I won't give away the ending it's a little bit different but it's similarly awesome and uh, again fortunately he does not completely succeed at his goals 
and my story that I think was inspired by this, although it may not have been because it's so much stranger, but does have a somewhat similar conceit, is a story that Clive Barker wrote called In the Hills and the Cities. Um, and it is about uh, two men in the, on vacation, I think in England, like the woods of England, and they like go off the path and find these two villages that have a uh, ritual where everybody in the village ties themselves together to form a colossus, but they're all still alive. So you have to imagine like a giant human that's just made of people, like hundreds of little people all strapped yeah. together in a very intricate pattern. And they, these two innocent bystanders witness this. And then they, so there's these, each village turns into a person and they like have a ritual fight. Unfortunately, the two bystanders witness the fight go wrong. Um, and well, not to give it away, but that one of the colossi isn't built properly. So everybody in it gets crushed and there's like this great river of blood. And then the second colossus, goes instantly mad and starts rampaging across the the landscape. It's So you did just give it away. I did. But it's an amazing story and it's well worth reading, uh, regardless of whether you know the ending or not, because the imagery is some of the strangest that I've ever read, I think. And I don't know like it's hard to tell if it's directly related to the story or not, but certainly the idea of making a uh, giant person out of many other people yeah. is very similar. Well it's horrifying and I want to read it now, so it's good. I have nothing to share. <laughs> But I guess I guess all that is to say, like I wish there were more Clark Ashton Smith inspired stories, whether explicitly or not. That is the Colossus of Yalorn. I also want to say I don't think this is the peak of the Averone stories. I think we're at the we're at the apex, but yeah. there are a couple of others that are as good as this one. Okay. I don't Great. think any of them get any better than this, but it's pretty damn good. All right. And to quote Phil's note, the conclusion for the story is this story kicks ass. That's my uh, scholarly assessment. <laughs> Next episode, we will discuss the Mandrakes. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. You can find us on our website at thedoubleshadow.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedoubleshadow on Twitter at twitter.com slash the double shadow. You can also find us on Google plus, but there's not an easy link for that one. No. So give it a search. You'll find us on there too. Yeah. And until next time, sorcery can only be fought with sorcery. No, you're wrong. We'll see. <laughs> no, because I'm looking at Beast of Averone right now. If I'm wrong, I'll apologize. But in for right now, this is what Beast I believe. No, for right now, <laughs> Beast of Averone takes place in 1369, and they still call it the werewolf haunted forest of Averone. Okay, so by then there are actual werewolves, but before you know what you that... can't. You know what you're not allowed to do. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> you're not allowed to perform these theory acrobatics. <laughs>